C-A-M-P-A-D-U-L-T-H-O-O-D Camp Adulthood Bridging the Millennial Divide One conversation at a time Interviewing guests Strangers and friends We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood. Welcome to Camp Adulthood and the Resident Youth. I'm Camp Adulthood, Shay Keats. And I'm the Resident Youth, Maddie Yergi. And today is a special, everybody's favorite Shay and Maddie friendship podcast. We love it. We're so excited. Yay. And I was Maddie and I've just been like talking for 25 minutes because I feel like I haven't seen her beautiful little face in many, many moons, even though it's probably been like a week and a half. Uh, I know. But it's very good to see her. And she's coming to visit me this summer. And I'm just telling everyone so you can get excited for the content. I booked my flight. Very exciting. Mm -hmm. We're going camping. Camp Adulthood goes camping. Like real camping on the beach. Oh, it's going to be great. I'm going to borrow, because producer Jenny will be back from France full time at that time. So I'm going to borrow her uh, field microphone so we can do field recordings. Love it. Very exciting. Very exciting. All right. Well, shall we dive into the usual segments? Let's do it. Do you have a millennial moment for us, Shay? So, well, I have two things. The first is that we've been doing this for a long time now. And my millennial moment is that I'm starting to get like severe neurotic anxiety about my millennial moment because I just feel like I don't know why. I just feel like I can't think anything. I've like Like used all the things. It's to think of one. Yeah, it's a little bit stressful yeah, to think of. One. I've just turned it into, and maybe this is like our listeners can be like, if there's something you want us to talk about or like mm-hmm. a new segment. But I feel like the millennial moment for me has morphed into just like keeping Stories people updated. Yeah, on my personal True. life and like travels yeah. and stuff. Because, like you know, we're two data points on the millennial tapestry, as it were. And so, mm-hmm. you know, anything, anything that we do is considered a millennial moment, really. Yeah. Do you think about it? Oh, I had another fun Shay doesn't know about geography moment over oh my the God. weekend. Yes. Although this one is a little more like regionally specific. So I can't like totally blame myself for like thinking this. Uh, so there's this island in the Columbia River, which is near Portland called Sabi Island. And I thought it was like... Um, I thought it was something, you know, like those islands in the Hudson River that all are like kind of like ghost towns and they used to be like sanatoriums and stuff like that. Yeah. So that's what I thought this island was like. And or like David, Rikers. Yeah, or like Rikers. Yeah. That's so where the jail like, is. That's the jail. I know that from Long Order. Um, and David was like, we're going to go for a hike on Savi Island. And I was like, oh, this sounds scary. And I thought it was going to be really yucky and maybe full of um, inmates or toxic waste. I don't know. But it's full of farms. And it's beautiful. <laughs> I'm sure it's and like, it you know, so those nice. islands off the coast and of Vancouver. Gigantic. Yes. And that's what it was like. Yeah, that's what it reminds beautiful. me of. Very beautiful. I actually have. So I hope these people don't mind that I'm blasting them publicly, but so on May 11th, I pulled up a, a group text conversation mm-hmm. with um, s- some pals, producer Jenny, former guest of the pod, Jen Tonti, and mm-hmm. my friend Ricky. And I'll just re- I'll just read the conversation. Okay. 
I was today years old when I realized Mount Everest is in, is in India. Just an FYI. Ricky says, I thought it was in Nepal, question <laughs> mark. Oh, it could be. I literally just never thought about it. I only know because my Nepali coworker climbed it, smiley face. Ah, uh, fair. I think you're right. But also, literally just never thought about where it was. Someone else says, I'm pretty sure I used to think it was in Europe. <laughs> I kind of did too, but like hadn't actually pondered it. After some Googling, oh, technically it's half in Nepal, half in China. Two countries I didn't realize were next to each other. Guys, I got to look at a globe. I went to Asian trivia the other day at work and have never felt so ignorant. I have literally been to countries that I can't point to on a blank map. I feel like same. You've been to Asia? Nope. Countries in Europe, which is probably embarrassing considering I lived there. Uh, Okay, I thought I missed it. And then I said, my classic one, I thought Vietnam was an island nation until I went there. I also thought Afghanistan was on the ocean until Corey told me it was landlocked. Prime American education. And then Ricky said, I also found out the other day that the Mason-Dixon line borders Pennsylvania, a.k.a. the state I grew up in. So. Oh. Relatable content. Very, very relatable content. Yeah. And every time we start having these conversations, I'm always like, I'm pretty like savvy about the world, or at least I think I'm like pretty well read, but I really couldn't show you where Nepal is on a map. And often, many times have I confused Mount Everest and uh, Mount McKinley slash Denali. Mm. Yes. It's also yeah, super for relevant. Those of you who don't know that's in Alaska. <laughs> Close. And I've been Close. there. Yeah. yeah. It's also, I recently thought about Mount Everest because sadly people have been dying there this season because it's yes, now I getting so crowded. I know. Yeah. And did you see the picture of all the people lined yes. up with their like, it was, I was like, who wants to do that? That sounds awesome. I'm kind of obsessed with Mount Everest. They're, the book Into Thin Air by Jonathan mm-hmm. Krakauer is really good to show like how dangerous it actually is. He is a journalist and he went up there and he and his crew members basically almost died in like the death zone they call it because most people die on Mount Everest coming down yeah from the oxygen exposure and stuff for whatever reason um and it was very harrowing and about a quarter of people that attempt to climb Mount Everest actually die so it's a pretty high rate um yeah. and the, the New York Times a couple of years ago I'll link to it they did a big sort of like photojournalism and like there was a whole written piece that went with it talking about the Nepali Sherpas that go up to retrieve the dead bodies that are frozen there for American families that want to bury their dead. And like, that sounds really morbid, but there's like more to the story of like how these people actually died and like how dangerous it actually is. So I find it very fascinating, but sad. I really like hiking, but the idea of like scaling mountains has no appeal to me. I get much above like 10,000 feet and I'm like, "Mm, this is no longer fun. I know. It's like people think that they're the exception and they're most usually the rule. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's also really sad to take it down a notch. My brother, actually one of his close high school friends, was missing for the past week. He went kayaking and they actually just found his body today. (gasps) Oh, no. I I saw something on Instagram, but I didn't know what the story was. Jacob Sandy, rest in peace. He's great. Um, But, yeah, it was really really harrowing he went kayaking by himself on lake michigan and a storm rolled in and it just went south but it's like you know again not to place blame on him or anything but it's like you don't realize 
how dangerous some of these outdoor activities really are and how, mm-hmm. you know, you, you hear these statistics of like, oh, yes, it's very dangerous. And Lake Michigan is like an ocean. It has a current and everything. But like, you don't think that it's going to be you or someone that you know that something happens to. And then it's very yeah. sad. So I'm glad yeah. that the family is at peace and they have found him and can lay him to rest and stuff and mm-hmm. can get back to, to life. But still very sad. So, yeah. Poor guy. Yeah. Um, my millennial moment. Um, mm-hmm. I went to, also with former guest of the pod, Laura Vinci, we went to a panel on CBD oil the other day. Oh, and what did you learn, Madeline? Well, I just think it's such a such a millennial topic. I know um, when we were out there, Shay, you were talking about CBD oil for dogs the last time I visited yes. you. Yes. Uh, we tried to get some for uh, our dogs to help them kind of be chill because they, <laughs> at that point in time, they hated each other, but... Uh, not to get off topic, but hot update from uh, this household is that Benson and Duke have touched noses. <gasps> and they love it's each very other. Very exciting. Uh, no, but Benson <laughs> keeps going in his crate when he's not there. Uh-huh. And then they touched noses the other day. And we are hoping within the next month to reintroduce them to one another. I love like, it. Baby steps. Sh- baby this steps. It's only taken a year, more than a year. <laughs> So, yeah, I was gonna say yeah. I feel like I visited around this time last year and yeah, when it was like very dramatic. So we had tried, but the problem is that it's we were using like pre-cooked like treats that we had bought from a store. Right. And our one dog weighs a hundred pounds. So yeah. like he has to have so many cookies. Right. Like, he'd have to have like 14 cookies. Right. So I learned at this panel oil, but I'm sure, yeah, that's what they said. They were like, if you ingest CBD or really any like even if you're using THC products or whatever, like anything that you're ingesting, you only absorb about mm-hmm. 10% of it at most. Oh, wow. So, you know, if you have like milligrams in an edible versus milligrams in, you know, like you, people use like tinctures, you can put the oil under your tongue and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like 10% versus, you know, close to 100%. Wow. But yeah, no, the panel was really good. It was um through this company called Heyday, which I know they're in New York. but and, Oh, I've heard of them. Yeah, Laura belongs to them and they... It's like a month, you get a monthly facial and then they have kind of these like wellness programs. And if you belong to the thing, um, you get a discount, but I don't belong and I paid and it was really nice. There was like CBD cocktails and like CBD food and you could like make your own CBD bath oil and stuff. And I was like, I was really unfamiliar with it. I've tried it. Um, once one of my friends, when we went to the beach had like a CBD, like juice beverage that I tried, Mm -hmm. I don't think it did anything. And for our listeners that aren't familiar with it, CBD is pretty trendy right now it's um a non-psychoactive strain of marijuana so like thc which is what people are used to that gets you high cbd does not give you get you high but it has a lot of the same benefits that traditional weed quote unquote has so it's like anti-anxiety anti-inflammation um things like that and there are actually i learned at this panel over a hundred types of non-psychoactive strains and cbd is just one of them and it's like kind of the flavor of the month but there are others out there that are like interesting starting to gain popularity and they all have kind of different things. And unfortunately there hasn't been a lot of research about it. Um, but anyways, the panel, it was three women. One of the women, she is epileptic and she's actually weaned herself off of epilepsy medication completely wow. by using CBD oil. So obviously, you know, disclaimer about this whole conversation. None of us are doctors. None of these women are doctors. So like take all the stuff we say with a grain of salt. Um, But she's from the UK and her sister has a more advanced form of epilepsy and they're very, they're in like a 
prohibition state now where you can't get CBD at all in the UK, which I didn't know. Wow, I um, did not know that either. Yeah, so she's filming a documentary called Separating the Strains right now to kind of bring awareness to what's happening in Europe. And right now the U.S. actually, in a more progressive move, has mm-hmm. um, legislation that passed about a year ago called the Farm Bill that actually separates CBD and the other non-psychoactive forms of marijuana from the THC stuff. So that's why you can find CBD products at like Walgreens and stuff now, um, if you're wondering why that happened. Um, But that is not the case all over the world. So she takes CBD. She uses it to treat her endometriosis. She has epilepsy, obviously, all this stuff. So it's pretty cool. So that movie's coming out. And then there was another woman who started a company called Mo Allen's, which they actually gave out samples of it, like the oil. And she has a pharmacy background, and her big thing is getting, um, like, industry standards for purity and potency and stuff like that Love from, like, that. a scientific yeah. perspective. And the big takeaway from what she said was, you know, people always push for, like, we need, you know, scientific trials, and we need this stuff in pharmacies, and doctors need to be educated. And she was like, as soon as an FDA trial starts, they take mm-hmm. all the products off the shelves, so she was like, oh, wow. sometimes the push for FDA regulation is actually it's damaging to people that need it every day. Like the woman with epilepsy, yeah. like if they tried to start an FDA trial, they have to take all the over-the-counter stuff off the shelves for the duration of the trial, which can be really damaging for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a eh, double-edged sword of what's better yeah. long-term for the most people. Um, and then there was a woman who started a company called Poplar which is kind of like a net-a-porter for CBD products, and they eventually want to sell THC as well when that legalizes, hopefully. Um, And, like, she was on, like, an SSRI, an antidepressant, and she kind of traded that for CBD, and it's working really well for her, but she was like, I'm a suburban mom. I don't want to go to a weed shop or, like, some weird CBD dispensary. I just want to buy it from, like, a normal classy looking website or like you know Mm -hmm. go to a department store or something so she kind of made this website that um you know you can get stuff delivered to your home you don't have to be seen out in public with something that still has a lot of stigma attached to it um but yeah and they all kind of talked about you know it's really big in new york i'm sure portland with the weed legalization Mm -hmm. has a lot of cbd and stuff but a lot of places even though even places where like Michigan just legalized all marijuana products. You don't mm-hmm. see a lot of THC things in stores, at least not that I've seen since I've been there. Um, and it can be really impactful for a lot of people. And the stigma that it will get you high or that it's illegal is not a great stigma for something that can really mm-hmm. help a lot of really serious health issues. So, yeah, I love that. Yeah. That was an excellent millennial moment, Maddie. Yes. Now, when you had the cocktails and the snacks and all of that, did you feel like you had, like, you could feel feel it, quote unquote? No, or... so that, that was kind of a funny thing about the panel because they were, like, talking about the trendiness of CBD. And they were like, you can get CBD lattes, CBD alcohol, CBD drinks. And they were like, A, mm-hmm. if you ingest it, like I said, it's you're only going to get such a small percentage of it that's actually absorbed. And they were like, mm-hmm. you don't know even what the potency is like if you're using a low potency oil in an edible you're not Mm going to feel anything you're not going to get any of the benefits Mm -hmm. um so they were like if you really want to test it out and see if it works 
for your anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. um, any sort of, you know, that's why like people with arthritis, like any sort of chronic inflammatory disease, it can really help with. Yeah. Um, you should take it via tincture in an oil form mm-hmm. under your tongue for 30 days straight. And that's okay. And see if it helps you. Um, but they were like, if you're just, you know, sipping a CBD latte every day. And they were also like the effect, if you're putting CBD in alcohol, they were like, alcohol is already like, it already has like it's depressive own. qualities. Yeah. So you're not going to feel anxious when you're drinking already. Right. Like, yeah, you're going to feel, you're not going to be able to tell what's from the alcohol and what's from Chill. the CBD. Yeah. Could you taste the CBD in it? Um, was there like a not, distinctive taste? I know. No, not in the drinks. In the when we made like the bath salts and stuff, and when you smell the oil, it does mm-hmm. smell vaguely of marijuana, which is again why mm-hmm. there's like a stigma because people are like, oh, I don't want to, you know, a lot of people like with arthritis will rub it on their skin, but then you end up having mm-hmm. the smell on you and stuff. Um, so I could smell it yeah. more than I could taste it, but it's interesting. interesting. Oh, I like it. Very Do good. you have a hot topic for us, Shay? Um, I just. Well, so first of all, I do, there are two things. My original hot topic was going to be, I wanted Maddie and I to discuss the Game of Thrones finale. Oh my so God. I do want to do that. Yes. Um, I want to put a pin in that though first, because then I did find this article that okay. I just thought was like, so weird. I had to I um, it. share it. Uh, okay. Well, let's, before you go, in. let's do oh, yes. the article and then I'll do my millennial moment because it's kind of, a, or okay. my hot topic because it's kind of a downer and yes. then we'll. Do the Game of Thrones after that. That's what I was thinking. Great. Yes. On the same page. (laughs) Um, I'll keep this short because I just was like, this is bizarre to me. So um, it's from Vox and I found it through Girls Night In, which is a newsletter we've talked about before that that we like. Um, But it's uh, called, the name of the article is Inside the Haunted Doll Markets of eBay and Etsy. So apparently there are these people who sell like vintage porcelain dolls on ebay and etsy that are supposedly haunted or have some kind of like spirit quality about them and apparently this is like a huge business and i just think it's totally bizarre a because first of all like why would you want that and b like these people spend all of this time doing all of these like weird experiments on the dolls so that they can like um, say that they're legitimately haunted. So like, I just want to read this part because I was like, this is bizarre. So uh, quote, when it, while there are con artists looking to take advantage of uneducated buyers, many haunted item purveyors hold themselves to what they see as high ethical and scientific standards. It costs us a fortune in tools, says Blowers, who is one of these vendors. Um, Whenever she acquires a doll, Blowers and her husband put it through an intense investigation that lasts one to three months. So then she talks about the different things that they have to do. And it's like, first, uh, the doll is separated from other paranormal objects. Then it does like an electromagnetic energy reader for three to five days. And then they put the doll in a box and record it um, because sometimes like different voices and music will come out. Um, Then they conduct lucid dreaming sessions, which quote, involve sleeping next to the doll alongside a piece of amethyst, piece of amethyst, um, which is supposed to be a potent lucid dreaming crystal to see if they have any weird dreams. And then Blowers typically ends up with a 15 page report by the end of each investigation. 
And these dolls are going anywhere from like, you know, like 40 to $80 to in the thousands of dollars for these um, haunted, creepy looking dolls. And some of them have good powers, but you can think you're buying one with good powers and then it can have something yucky inside of it, which they talk about in the article as well. And uh, the whole thing is very weird. But then what I think is super interesting, just to close it up, is then eBay, for example, has a policy that specifically forbids the selling of souls. And this is why I was like, I have to talk about this, because I love that that's like in eBay's terms of conditions, you may not sell souls. Um, and that <laughs> has been since 2000. So in the early days of eBay. And then in 2012, eBay further banned metaphysical items, including spells, hexes, potions, and magical services. Uh, so I just thought this was crazy. And yes. Who's buying that? I want to know. I don't understand. Yeah. Well, I have two things with that. One is like, I remember way back when, when we were talking about Damien Eccles' book on high magic. Oh, we were I talking get about, that. I keep forgetting. Yes. It's very good. But we were talking about, there was a Vanity Fair article that was talking about um, real life exorcisms are on the rise. And oh, God. Yeah. Like, we talked about this. That some people, like, they think it's because of the rise in, like, all this metaphysical stuff that, like, exorcisms are happening. So I was like, ooh, crazy. Mm-hmm. It just reminded yeah. me of that. But um, what it really reminds me of, I was in Baltimore this weekend and we went to an art museum. And it was, like, you know, similar to, like, every art museum in, like, every city you've been to where it's, like, mostly Renaissance art. And then there will be, like, some sort of, like, more modern stuff. And we were talking about it. It was one of Corey's friends was there. And there was this, like, weird sort of... It was, like, an altarpiece, but it had, like, little etchings of, like, small babies, and it looked so creepy. And we were all like, who, like, you know, in the year 1600 looked at this and was like, this doesn't look creepy. This is fine. This is a beautiful piece of art. You know, that's what the creepy doll thing reminds me of. I'm like, (laughs) we've made the dolls creepy over time. But at some point in time, someone made that doll and was like, this is a cute baby doll. Someone thought those dolls were cute at the beginning, and they're not cute anymore. Yeah. No. Um, that's an excellent yeah. moment. I got that newsletter. I didn't click on that article, but <laughs> I wish yeah. I had, because well, there's a lot of good p- tidbits. There were just so many good tidbits in there, and I just thought the whole fact that, like, <laughs> this a company, a big tech company like eBay has to consider, yeah. like, banning the selling of haunted items is just so crazy to well, me. Well, it's like anytime you see, like, a warning... Uh, says there's- anytime you see like a warning on an object or like a terms of service it's like it's because some idiot tried to do that that's why they had to put Mm -hmm. that in there you know totally like whenever there's a sign that's like don't sit here it's like it's because someone tried to sit there you know yeah oh my god all right uh maddie your toasty campfire log okay so i started reading this book i have it right next to me it's called the gulag archipelago and i'm gonna Mm. recommend it for a number of reasons even though excellent it's a real downer of a book. Um, but it reminds me, actually, it's kind of fortuitous that we're talking about it in this episode um, with your millennial moment, Shay, about, you know, gaps in the American education system in terms of geography. But I started reading this book because it was recommended through a different podcast that I listened to. And they were talking about the gaps in learning in 
you know, just education in general, but specifically American education about the Soviet Union. And I thought about it and I was like, I don't know anything about the Soviet Union. Like my history classes in mm-hmm. high school, we learned about World War II extensively. Everyone does. There's mm-hmm. museums about the Holocaust. There's all sorts of memorials. It's great. It's important. We're all, we're all up on that for sure. Like even via, I took a, a class on Vietnam in high school. Um, we of course learn about the Civil War, the American Revolution, basically anything that's like American centric. And I think because mm-hmm. the, you know, what Lenin and Stalin were doing to its people didn't really affect Americans. It doesn't percolate our education system maybe the same way that Nazi Germany did. Um, mm-hmm. So this podcast was recommending this book because they were like, it's written from the first person perspective of a Russian person who was detained in a prison camp, the gulags, basically. Mm. And he gave a very detailed account of what happened to him, what happened to other people, kind of the whole economic climate of the time that he was there and the whole Soviet Union. It's a very like I thought it was going to be very like textbooky. But it's very readable, and he wrote it kind of in three parts. He wrote one part Mm -hmm. right after his escape, I think. I'm going to muff up the times, I think. But it was, like, around the 50s, and then he wrote part two in the 70s, and then he wrote part three in the 90s. And he was able Mm -hmm. to escape Russia. He lived in the United States until he passed away, and he won the Nobel Prize. And he didn't go to the ceremony because he thought that Russian spies were going to poison him. Um, Oh, no. So his book was banned in Russia. If you were caught having it up until the wall fell in the 90s, um, you could go to the gulags and have the same faith that this guy had. Um, And thankfully, he made it through, but a lot of people didn't. Mostly, um, a lot of people were executed, but most people just froze because it's cold in Siberia. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And so... We do know that. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff, I was like, you know, like when you conceptually hear like between kind of communist russia and china they Mm -hmm. estimate that anywhere between 60 to 100 million people died in the 20th century that's like an unfathomable number of people that i that's crazy was unaware had no idea about no idea no idea i heard a little bit like in in high school about um the chinese revolution we heard about Mm -hmm. but in terms of russia you hear about the great purge that happened in the 30s over like a year-long period which is like six hundred thousand people which is still yeah an unfathomable number but if you count and he goes through in the book as well and it's written by i should mention alexander solzhenitsyn i'm sure i'm not pronouncing that correctly um but he talks about like this is why the facts like the reason why we know how many people died in nazi germany is because they were nazis and they kept incredibly good records of the Mm -hmm. people that they killed which is horrible but great from a historian perspective the same thing did not happen in soviet russia like the people that were sent to camps that died from exposure were not considered political executions even though from a modern lens if you were sent yeah, yeah if you were sent to prison to work with no shoes in siberia in negative 40 degree fahrenheit weather and you died that to me is considered a political execution you know Um, Yes. So that's how they get these huge figures of just like, they were just whole scale, just sending families, whole communities to these prisons, and they were just dying, and no one really thought anything of it. Um, And the thing that I find most remarkable about the book, and again, this is why I'm like, oh my god, so in sync, why we're bringing it up in this episode, but like, going back to our Mount Everest thing of like, everyone thinks Mm -hmm. that they're the exception, not the rule. Mm -hmm. And... 
I think this is a big lesson of the 20th century overall, both in terms of the Soviets, but I think there's a lot of lessons of this from Nazi Germany as well, that everyone in modern times thinks that they would be like the Schindler in the situation. They think that they would be yeah. the liberator when in reality you're probably, statistically speaking, going to either be the prisoner or the oppressor. Yeah. And he really goes through, and I think this is the most remarkable thing in the book of like, and why it's so relatable reading a book mm-hmm. that part of it is, you know, almost 100 years old or yeah. like 70 years old. I can do math with my head. Um, Good math. Like why it's is because he goes through like, this is the psychology of how it felt to be a prisoner, but this is also how people justified being the oppressor. And I think it's just so important, like even, you know, to tie it back to like what I was doing this weekend, I was in DC for Memorial weekend. And I think it's so hard to look back on even just American history, let alone world history and feel connected as a modern day human and to not, you know, to really embody, you know, the never forget philosophy. And Mm -hmm. it's not just about remembering that it happened, but it's remembering that these were people just like, you and the fact that I made it through 25 years of not really knowing all this stuff and I think there's yeah. a lot of people out there which is why I'm recommending this book it's definitely not like a late beach read but <laughs> I think it's important in the fact that the Russians didn't want people to read it mm-hmm. until the 90s is telling that probably means that there's some truth to it um so yeah just wanted to give that recommendation the gulag archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn and I bought the abridged version he the author actually, before he, he died, he made an abridged version. Because if you buy all three volumes, it's like so thick. Huge, yeah. But he basically just like condensed it down into like these are the bits that a mainstream audience would read if you're not like an academic. Excellent. And well, that is good to know. It's very educational. Well, thank you, Maddie. That is an excellent recommendation. Maddie always has like the best intellectual book recommendations and then I'm like read this book about vampires who grow flowers which is hilarious because you're the one that has a master's in literature yes and I think that's probably why I tend I mean I have many opinions on literature in which I can get into them on another day but um I'm you you always have the best book recs Maddie and I really appreciate that great So before we hit the practice tent, uh, Game, Game of Thrones. Thrones. Yes. Uh, so we are, this has been now about a week and a half <laughs> since the final episode. Yes. Um, I don't know how you are uh, filling the hole for murdery British well, Have you watched shows. the documentary that came out? I watched it last night. No. What's the documentary? Oh, you and David got to watch it. It's on HBO. Okay. It's. Yeah. It's called like The Last Watch or something, but it they filmed a documentary of the making of season eight of Game of Thrones and it's on HBO. You can watch it. It's two hours. And it's very good. So maybe after you watch that, we'll have a debrief of the documentary. Oh, but that. it basically goes through like how they built the sets, how they filmed it. They go through like the table read where like John where Kit Harrington realizes that he's gonna have to kill Amelia Clark's character for the first time, and he has oh, yeah. a dumb look on his face. Oh, yeah. Spoilers. Sorry. I'm sorry. Spoilers, 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 <laughs> spoilers. Please, yeah. if you haven't watched yet, please Oh, my God. If you it. haven't watched it and you're a serious fan after... If you care about spoilers, literally, you could not have gone on the internet in the past week and a half, so I'm sure you've already Well, I mean, I don't know. I just still think it's polite to say. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Maybe spoilers. this is our differences, but I think if it's live television and you don't watch it when it's live... Mm. Netflix well, stuff, I understand. But, like, if it's yeah, on live, I, you have 24 hours to watch it without no, being spoiled. See, 
I agree that like you shouldn't be mad if it gets spoiled, but I also think like for oh yeah, I'm not gonna go who, right. I'm not gonna go like, out of my way to give be a rude. warning. Yeah. yeah, exactly for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought here's the thing: I did not hate the way that it ended. I didn't either. I thought the last episode was yeah. better than some of the previous, actually. Yeah, and I felt like I could walk away from that show feeling like good yeah, about having satisfied. invested the time in watching it. Yeah. Like, I didn't like that Danny went crazy and, like, killed hundreds of thousands of people, but you know, like, and I and I didn't really love that Jon Snow was, like, this very circular ending and he's basically punished after everything that he did, even though I don't even like Jon Snow as a character, and I think he's real dumb. Yeah. Um, I didn't I, like that, but... I think my biggest thing is, like, they're... Like, on one hand, I think that there should have been two seasons. I think that season eight should have been about the White Walker stuff. And then they should have had a last season to fill in the Cersei stuff. And I think I I read some statistic. It was on Twitter, so I haven't fact checked it. But I thought it was interesting that the main plot of the last season was about Daenerys kind of going crazy and Cersei. Mm -hmm. And they the women in general not just those two characters women in general only had 22 percent of the speaking lines in the last season oh, really? yes wow. and none of the episodes were directed by women which like whatever fine but i'm like wow when you put it that way that like this whole season was about two female characters and even if you add up all of brianne's lines aria's lines everything all the female yeah. characters were only so like it's a season about two women and you don't see it from their perspective at all. And I was like, wow, that's really bad. Um, And I was like, that's probably why I felt like it was rushed and I didn't really believe Danny's fall to madness. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, we watched Cersei be evil for two seasons. We watched all these people have these big arcs. And then I was like, all for Bran to take the throne. Like why? It just seemed like half baked the writing. But I also agree. While this is going on, I'm like texting Maddie, by the way. I'm like, is the theme of this, is like the big takeaway from Game of Thrones going to be hashtag democracy or (laughs) oligarchy? But like, Sam tried and he failed. I know. Well, I've, they definitely put that little Easter egg in there for the fans. But I think the big thing, I was talking to my aunt about this because she called me right after it happened and we were pointing out, like, you know, the writing and this has been this is not like groundbreaking this has been a criticism of game of thrones since the beginning that it's a misogynistic violent show that poorly writes female characters like sansa's whole character arc was i was raped and now i'm a strong woman like can we think of anything more tropey no so like there's so many examples of it like yeah. the gratuitous like aria losing her virginity thing like it's just all bad i think yeah. well but, except I liked that Arya lost her virginity to Gandry or whatever. It was his very name nice, is. but I was like, it I didn't move the it. plot it was very forward. Nice. It was nice. Yeah. It. But I agree in terms of storytelling. Yeah, I was just like, it's it's fine. It's like a nice like fan favorite thing, but mm-hmm. it didn't move the plot forward in any way. Um, or like, it also bothered me. This is like a little aside that like during the big battle in King's Landing when, like, Jon Snow saves that woman from being raped. It's like, do we really need to see that to believe that Jon Snow is a good person? No. Yeah. Like, that's gratuitous. Like, why are you using rape as a plot line? That really bothered me, um, amongst other things. But, um, 
you know, I think the big takeaway that I got from the very last episode, which is why we're having this conversation, is that people are true to their nature. Like, Danny fell to madness because her dad did. John doesn't want the throne and he doesn't get it. Bran wants to be controlling and he gets to control everything in the end. Arya gets to set sail. That's what she wants. So it's like every character got what they wanted, but yeah. it was also true if to their nature. Dead. So it's like, yeah. you know, it's kind of like it makes sense. It's like, oh, this this wraps up neatly in a bow, but it kind of feels you leaving empty inside of like, why did I just watch all this character development? Even Brienne of Tarth, it's like, she, I wish her character kind of ended when she got knighted because it's like she spent her time writing about, you know, Jamie's heroic stuff didn't include herself. Mm-hmm. Her, who's going to write her story? No one, you know, it's kind of, yeah. it just makes you feel sad for all the women in the show, I think. That's yeah. my no, takeaway. I, de- I definitely see that. I also think HBO set it up. So, I mean, I know supposedly this sequel that yeah. they're making is actually a prequel uh, or the spinoff is a prequel. Probably better, um, I think. I agree, but I also think they set it up. I mean, they could do so many spinoffs of uh, with the way that they ended it. We could follow Sansa. We could follow Jon. We could follow Arya. We could follow what yeah. happens in uh, King's Landing. Like, so they've really set themselves up to make this a franchise. Like, should they so want to do right. that? Um, which is, it's a smart that they did that, and it was interesting that they were able to write about it. Um, to write that in a way that was believable, but also set themselves up for that kind of empire, so to speak. Yeah. It's just the cynical part of me is like, I, I know, wish Maddie, the... ever the cynic. <laughs> well, I just wish like, yes, I think given how they set up season eight, it all kind of tied together nicely and it sets them up for spinoffs. But like, it just wasn't like, I don't know if they weren't setting it up for spinoffs and they, weren't looking at it of like season eight was the most highly rated season like we have all these these Mm -hmm. new fans and stuff it's like you could have done different like i hope the optimistic part of me is like i hope that they wrote it that way not thinking about the spinoffs and like the economic Mm -hmm. opportunity but like the cynical part of me is like they they totally did it that way and they're playing the fans and like hoping that people will like stay involved with it even given the shitty writing of the show which makes me sad Yeah, that's all very true. Well, I I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I mean, I think my biggest hope is this has just created an interest in these types of, you know, sweeping epic fantasies. And hopefully we can see more female centric and female led um, shows with this amount of personality or personality. What is the word? I'm like very tired Definitely. All today. I don't know why. Sorry. Yeah, I think you know part of perspective. I'm interested in you to watch the documentary too, because I think it showed one thing that stood out to me in that is like the fatigue of the actors in playing oh, these characters, yes. which I thought and was I really interesting. Because like just seeing, I don't want to. It's it's not really a spoiler, but it's like they were showing like Amelia Clark and Kit Harrington specifically, just like mm-hmm. seemed. And a little bit um, Sophie Turner, who plays mm-hmm. Sansa, they were just like, they just seemed, they they didn't seem as emotional to give it up. Mm-hmm. And they almost, yeah. like the way that they were talking to the documentarian and like talking amongst each other, it's like, they want to do other shit with their lives. Like they don't want yeah. these characters forever. So that's why Define I'm like, them. the these spinoffs and stuff, I'm like, you're going to have to pay these people buku bucks to sign up for oh, this. Yeah. And well, like, not to say that they're, they're ungrateful or anything, but it's just like you're playing the same character. And in Amelia Clark's 
instance it's poorly written, like well, she's you're not going to do that forever. So she can't come back anyway. Well, if it's a prequel, but I think what's that's true. Well, I guess the prequel is supposed to take place like thousands of years before. Mm. But now I have three interesting gotcha. things to say. <laughs> One, we've seen the meme of Cersei uh, or of whose name. Oh, she has such a funny name. The Liana, whoever, who plays Cersei. She basically got paid a million dollars an episode to stand right. and like look cranky. So yeah. good on her. Uh, number two, did you know? Well, no, I'll save the best one for last. Okay. <laughs> uh, number two, uh, have you read the New Yorker article about Amelia Clark? It came out in March. Um, I don't think so. Well, uh, highly, we'll link to it below. Um, so basically between seasons, filming seasons one and two, uh, she almost died of like several brain aneurysms and now she has this, oh, like, I didn't know about yeah, that. it's very interesting. Um, so I highly recommend reading that article and it just shows what a cool person she is overall. And number three, Madeline, did you know that yesterday Jon Snow, AKA Kit Harrington, checked in to a facility for treatment for alcohol and exhaustion. I believe the exhaustion part after watching this documentary for sure. Yeah. Like yeah. it's grueling. So, yeah, totally. You know? Totally. So that is our excellent take on Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones season 8. We love it. Um and I want to I'm sending you this article right Perfect. now. So question 1. <laughs> Have you ever dreamed about starting a business or if you've already got one, a new business? Mm. Maddie? Um, I have just because I think and I'm sure you, Shay, have a better idea of how this happens in practice. But I feel like the <laughs> idea of working for yourself is like very glamorous and nice and you can like make your own schedule and stuff. So I've like dreamt about that, but I've never like thought that deeply or like dreamed about like a product or a service that I would do but just like the thought of being an entrepreneur is nice I think well Maddie I I <laughs> do think that you have an entrepreneurial even though I can't say that word nature and I know I just, I'm slowly bringing you into my fold uh but I, I I could see you one day having a business um I this is basically my day-to-day -day life. Like every day I dream about starting a new business or spinning something off or doing something uh, different. Um, and Are there any it, that stick out as being like really cool? Um, no, actually. Well, <laughs> I mean... I just feel like none of them are very concrete right now yeah. besides the like six that I'm already doing. Right. So, um, <laughs> I was going to say, you're still kind of in the like building phase of your current business. Yes, so exactly. Exactly. That's but I, I always have things like on the percolator. Yeah. So, and I think that's just, you know, I think this is something that I've really struggled with in my business is this like going back and forth in my head of like, am I truly an entrepreneur? And I, I think other people who see me say yes, but it's like, it's really hard to be totally, yeah. dependent you know well I think there's also yourself so yeah it's like I feel like you know even people that have normal jobs it's like the whole millennial thing of like a side hustle and like all this stuff like no one's just doing one thing mm -hmm. and I thought that was like an interesting you know I feel like the people that kind of are in the same space as you like I'm thinking about like Brianne who we interviewed like mm -hmm. You know, she has, like, her main business, but then she also, similarly to us, like, has a podcast and, like, is doing all these other things. So it's mm -hmm. very multifaceted. 
I also really love the idea of the multifaceted entrepreneur, um, which I think they're calling, there's some like word that is like a buzzword right now now that I can't think of, but it's like multi, um, but I really like the idea and this is kind of where I'm, I may be kind of shifting the way I talk about my business, um, into the idea of having like micro businesses. So no one business is expected to kind of float your entire life. Um, but there's a lot that goes into setting that all up and, uh, it's just, it's very interesting. I feel like that's kind of what like Alexandra Franzen does, who we got these questions from. I actually just ordered her book that she, I think she linked to it in like one of her newsletters or something. And I was like, oh, this Mm -hmm. is interesting. So I'm sure I'll talk about that on a future podcast once I read it. But I feel like she does that because she has her like website with a bunch of free stuff. And then she does like private consulting. Mm -hmm. And then she also has her retreat and like all this stuff. Yeah. And, and it's really just becomes a lot about organizing your time. And if you can, and this is my whole like soapbox in general about work. It's like, if you really truly can be efficient and organized with your time, then you can do as much as you want. You really, it's incredible what you can fit into 40 or 50 hours a week. Um, And finding like sources of passive income, like you and Cassie have like beauty counter, like other people do Mm -hmm. like real estate, like a lot of people do that or like, you know, affiliate marketing affiliate yeah. like doing there's stuff in like the stock market like there's all sorts of ways that you can mm-hmm. do that totally cool. totally all right the next question unless you have them up do you have them up? i don't sorry okay. i did not open them this time have you ever fantasized about changing your first name oh. if so to what no i have legitimately never thought about that I love my first name with fiery passion, so the answer is definitely no. Yeah, I feel like you and I have very unique first names, so yeah, that's cool. Agreed, agreed. All right, moving on. Uh, have you ever fantasized about writing an advice column? What's mm. the first question you'd like to answer? Mm. I... Uh, I think about this also every day, by the way. <laughs> I love advice columns, and I want my own. Yeah, well, I guess this can be a shout-out to the listeners if you – have any advice you want Shay and I to answer send us emails and yes, maybe we can start please, our own please maybe that can Hello be a new at segment campadulthood.com yes um no I think that's really fun actually Roxanne Gay's new podcast she does a lot of like I feel like there's a lot of podcasts like Anna Ferris's too like there's a lot of good like advice podcasts out there yeah. or even like guys we fuck they have like an advice component at the beginning of the episodes so Definitely not. I don't, I've never fantasized about like writing an advice column, like for a newspaper, but like, I think there's so many podcasts that incorporate that, that I've thought about doing that. And I've been told I give good advice. Um, You do, Maddie. You're very wise. I don't know like what question I would want to answer. I feel like part of the fun of doing an advice column is that you get to kind of be the philosopher and the questions come to you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I actually did write an advice column for like five minutes in college for oh, our paper. I totally forgot fun. about that. But then they told me I wasn't allowed to make up the questions. And I was like, well, then get more people to write in. Right. Uh, so it didn't last very long. But uh, yeah, I don't know what kind of question I'd like to answer. I mean, that's the thing is like, I also, well, sometimes I like, I read a lot of advice columns and I'm like, oh, I love when people send in like dumb questions yeah. and, then and they the, make it like, like super philosoph- like yes. philosophical. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to love writing like the Ann Landers. Is it Ann Landers? Yeah. And yeah. the Dear Abby. And Dear, those were great. Like, and their whole story is. That's what I. Like fascinating to that's me. That's what so, I love about. All about advice read columns. 
That's what I love about Tiny Beautiful Things, the Cheryl Strayed book, which is like a series of her advice columns. It's like one of the best books and it's so good. So good. And even the Dear Sugar podcast is amazing advice column kind of podcast thing. I know, though. They don't make new ones anymore. I know, sad. But there's such a great back catalog for new people. Oh my God. (laughs) It will keep you busy for years. Um, Next, have you ever had a psychic reading? Did you believe it? And was it accurate? No, I haven't. But actually, Corey just the other day was like, we should go to a psychic for fun. Although he's like very superstitious. He doesn't like Ouija boards or tarot cards or anything like that. And I was like, most psychics in New York do tarot, um, which I actually really like. And small sidebar, if you haven't seen the movie Wine Country on Netflix that just came Ooh, out. Oh, I want to watch it so bad. Is it's, it good? It's really good. I watched it the other yeah. weekend and there's, I'm not going to spoil it, but there's like a tarot card reading scene and it's really funny. Um, so it made me think of that. So it's definitely like, I feel like this psychic tarot card thing is like very zeitgeisty for millennials. Um, mm-hmm. I've never been to a psychic. I know, like, I really want to do like the astrological birth chart. You have to have like oh. the minute. It's it's a big thing. I think it's more legit than just like psychics because they, um, you have to know like the precise minute on the day that you were born. So if you don't know that information, you can't, it's not that accurate. Um, but they give you this whole, it, it basically takes like the energy of the planets and they translate it. I'm sure a lot of it is bushy, but um, I yeah. know people that have done it and they're like, I think it's similar to like any of these self-help things, like the Enneagrams. I was talking to producer Jenny about this because she's very into Enneagrams, which we've talked about on this podcast. Yeah. And it's like, you know, obviously people are very multifaceted. You can't mm-hmm. put everyone on the planet into a box, but it's just like, I think things like Enneagrams or personality types or going to a psychic or doing a tarot card, it's just a way to, it's a starting point interpret. to to interpret yeah. your life. Yeah. Or start to think yeah. about these deeper questions that most yeah. people don't think about. It's not like a predictive tool. It's just being like, like if someone told you that you were open or that this thing was going to happen how would you react like that's where Mm -hmm. it's useful it's not useful in like what's going to happen to your life it's like if someone told you that you were going to die in 10 years or someone told you that you were you had an aggressive personality how does that make you feel how would you live your life differently knowing that information Mm -hmm. you know yeah I agree um I've never had a psychic reading I have had my tarot read um and it was scarily accurate (laughs) um and it was very funny because it was like right before I was about to leave my job in New York and we were having a party and my boss uh, and good friend of mine is, she's one of the most intuitive people I've ever met. Like I worked with her for, I mean, gosh, I mean, I've known her for almost a decade and I, I worked with her in some capacity for about seven years and she's the type of person who will like look at the phone and be like, oh, that client we talked to three months ago is going to call. And I'll be like, they're not going to call. They were not interested. (laughs) They're not going to buy shit from us. And then within the day, like the phone would ring and they would place an order, like insane stuff like that. So she read my tarot right before I left New York. And it just said a lot of stuff that kind of, um, it it was, it was very obvious that I was about to leave and like go on this new journey. So I think, but nobody knew that except for me. So it was like very, that was very weird. And then I've had, um, an aura reading done, uh, which is by radiant human, which if they come to your town, I would highly recommend. And they make you like sit in a, 
uh, it's this very weird, like photo booth that she's like, this girl has made herself. And then they take your picture and your aura comes up, but she says it's not really like your aura. Like when you talk about auras, anyway, I'd highly recommend going to her website and reading about it. Uh, but depending on like what colors come up around your head, it like means different things are happening or again, different ways to interpret your life and your personality. And that was also scarily accurate. And like, I, again, I really wish I'd like taken more notes, uh, when I had had that done, I would like to go see like a proper psychic just because I'm like interested in it. And again, it's not that I think they have the power to look at you and say, I know the future, I know your past, but I think, I think there is something again, to keep going back to this word of intuition and there's an intuitiveness about super certain people that are really um interesting yeah so. it's like some people are good at reading energy and i know you and i used to watch hollywood medium with tyler henry <gasps> i love tyler henry yes. so adorable i really yeah. want to read his book so. i think his show like oh i read his book i think all of those yeah. um like you know celebrity mediums and stuff but it's like you know we talked about this a little bit during Kristen and christian's episode where it's like mm-hmm you know, there's so much that we don't know about the physical and metaphysical world that it's like, maybe, maybe it is possible, you know, like people swear by it and there's no other way that they would know this information or, you know, kids that have memories of World War II and like weird shit like that, that it's like, you know, people don't want to think about it because it's creepy, but like, yeah. Cool. Next question. Uh, Should we do one more, two more? Let's do two more. Have you ever had to make a public apology and why? No, but I'm like very scared of it. And I know we were talking about the other episode about Francesca Ramsey's book and Mm -hmm. the other book that I'm obsessed with that I know I've brought up so many times on this podcast, John Ronson's book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, Mm -hmm. talks a lot about public apologies. Um, No, I never have to. I think Francesca Ramsey's book, because she was kind of like, at the level of like popularity and being a public figure, I say in air quotes, as you and I are mm-hmm. for like many years. And then overnight, her YouTube videos blew up. And I th- thought about that reading this book. I was like, what if one of our podcast episodes blows mm-hmm. up and something we said? I don't even know. Like, people, even today, like my friends will be like, oh, I listened to the, you know, third episode of your podcast and you said such and such thing. And I'm like, I don't remember that shit, you know? So it's yeah, like, as soon as. Maddie posts these. I remember nothing. Yeah. FYI world. Yeah. Even I listen to them like the week after we record them. I'm like, oh, wow, that was an interesting conversation. Like, it's so bad. (laughs) So I'm like, if someone was ever like, you said this in 2017, like, how do you feel about it now? I would be like, oh, my God. Um, So that's really scary. But I think, you know, I kind of take the, you know, and again, this is coming from the perspective this has never happened to me. But I kind of take the philosophical approach of, like, if you hurt an individual or you say something about, you know, an individual that hurts someone personally, Mm. 100% would apologize and hopefully learn from that situation. But if it's, you know, someone acting in bad faith or something taken out of context or from a place of jealousy for the success of whatever you're trying to put out there, or if it's you know, something that was said as a joke or in jest, you know, there's lots of things that I've said on this podcast in jest that could be seen as offensive that, you know, I would never apologize for that, even if it offended someone, you know, I would hopefully learn from that. But personally, I think, you know, if someone comes to me and they're like, this specific instance really hurt me for X, Y, and Z reason, and that person 
was acting in good faith and they knew me and they knew the place that I was coming from, 100% would apologize in a heartbeat. But if it's like some fan on Twitter that's like, you said Drake was a pussy on episode 73 and I really took offense to that. It's like, fuck you. It was a joke. Sorry. So that's kind of my perspective. I like it. I I totally agree with you. And I think, again, we need to be just mindful of what we apologize for, for what we put out in the world and what we don't, particularly as women. Um, In a very specific instance, I had to make a public apology once when I was working with my little sorority girls and I did something they did not like. And they got very, very mad at me. Were you not on chapter council when the LC disaster happened? I don't think so. At least I have. I don't remember being in the room when you made a public apology, at least. This is news to me. So maybe I wasn't there. I had to come back and I had to say I was sorry. And I can't remember how publicly if it was like I made the apology, but I definitely had to do a lot of apologizing, even though I still believe I was not in the wrong. Yeah. Basically, some of the women were not good hosts to a visitor that we had. And I said some kind of cutting things that people took offense to. Um, And I thought they were being a little bit of babies, but it's fine. I'm sorry to any of our listeners who were involved in this. Um, But it was a lot of like an apology where it's like I did truly feel badly that I had hurt their feelings because these were young women that I really cared about. Um, But it was, you know, sometimes when you apologize and you're like, I hear that you say are saying this and I understand that you feel this way and I apologize that my action made you feel this way. Right. Not necessarily apologizing yeah. for the action. I think that goes back so. to the point of like if it's someone that you know personally that you interact with on a day-to-day basis, then yeah. an apology is a useful tool and it it can be coming from a sincere place even though you're like maybe and I'm not trying to speak for you in that specific situation, but sometimes mm-hmm. you're like, I would have said the same thing again. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I truly am sorry that you are feeling that way. That's one form of an apology. But sometimes it's like, I think this sort of, you know, just thinking on like a higher level than that, it's like these like public apologies that are clearly written by lawyers that are not sincere. It's like people can Mm -hmm. see through that. And so just the thought of like, well, I would have my opinion of them would have changed if they had just apologized and taken, you know ownership over what they did and it's like really would that have really changed your mind or would them demonstrating through their actions that they actually learned from the situation and changed their behavior that to me means more than saying I'm sorry you know if it's not meant to it but yeah no I haven't um I didn't even think about like in the caparol I mean I'm sure like everyone makes mistakes at work and stuff but like Mm -hmm. something that's as big as like you have to stand up in front of a room or like send an email or send a tweet out or like redact something like that's never happened to me and I hope it never does but I think it's awful that's why I love podcasting as a medium because Mm -hmm. it's like you know everything's out there and it's a continuous dialogue and it's not like a movie where it's like this is a snapshot Mm -hmm. edited thing where it's like I'm putting a piece of art out there it's like no this is I came home after work and I'm shooting the shit with Shay. So yeah. hopefully, I hope that people are acting in good faith and are seeing our words that way in this instance. Um, and know that obviously, even our first thing that we we're talking about this episode, we're very ignorant on lots of things. But I think over the years of doing this podcast, we've shown a willingness to basically bring anyone on that wants to come and reading any email mm-hmm. and taking different perspectives. And that to me means more than like, if I said something or did something that hurt someone, obviously I'll take yeah. responsibility, but I'm not just going to like issue a public apology because that's the agreed upon social thing that we all expect 
yeah. in this sort of like outrage and call out culture that we're all a part of, unfortunately. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Last but not least, have you ever met one of your heroes? Hmm. I mean, I could go the sentimental route and be like, my grandparents are my heroes. Yeah, and I met them every day, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's kind of a nice thing. But I feel like the spirit of the question is like, you know, someone that you looked up to from afar and then got the opportunity to meet. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I have twice and they were both like super dorky or like (laughs) actually three times. And they were all like just writers I really admired. Um, And my favorite story is I was giving a paper in Canada and it was like this conference that's about this one author and one of uh, the author has died like many, many decades ago. But uh, one of the her like foremost biographer who's like written like the seminal biography on her was there. And she's like this adorable little old lady. And she walked in like in the middle of me giving my presentation or not like right before my, my like me reading my paper started. And then I like look up and I see her and I like pretty much blacked out for like the rest <laughs> of me reading that paper. Like I could not tell you. And then she asked a question and I had to answer it. And I was like, I think I answered well, but Mary Rubio just asked me a question and she is like my idol and she's so smart and amazing. So that's probably my hero meeting experience. That's pretty cool. I can't say yeah. I've ever had anything like that that comes to mind, but that's yeah. pretty cool. Well, I idolize One day. Like authors of little to no importance. So they're easy. To yeah, meet. no, I mean, <laughs> the only thing that comes to mind, I wouldn't really call him a hero, but when I met Damien Eccles, that was pretty cool because I've read so much about him and like I know he's done so much I just find him fascinating um but I was expecting him to be kind of standoffish for whatever reason and he was like so warm and genuine and I was like you've been through so much you were on death row for 18 years and you're like giving everyone so much of your time and are so nice and I was just like oh it's great but I wouldn't call him a hero. He's just like a person that I admire their work and their spirit, but he surprised me. But I look forward to the day when I get to meet John Mayer and I hope he does not disappoint me. (laughs) Oh, that that would be quite the day. So terrible if he sucks in real life. All right, listeners, campers, we love you. We will see you next week. Yay. Thanks for listening. Camp Adulthood is hosted by Maddie Yergi, Resident Youth, and Shay Keats, Camp Adulthood. We are produced by Jenny Mayfield, and this episode was recorded in Maddie's living room. You can find us on social media at camp underscore adulthood. You can email us hello at campadulthood.com, and you can visit us at campadulthood.com. Thanks, campers. We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood.